Let me get set up here. So I am uh, Tim Landrum. I'm an elder here at uh, Soma Downtown, and I'm going to be today completing our Advent series. Uh, the last four weeks, we've done four different figures from Christ's genealogy. Right? This is at the beginning of Matthew, um, and. Uh, it's the, the list that Matthew gives of who led up to Christ, right? Starts with Abraham, Abraham being uh, the receiver of the covenant, the promise that God is going to make a people. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. It's, uh, I don't know, it's a little bit dry. It's a bunch of names. This person fathered this person, fathered that person, right? Um, and I think the past three weeks they've read through it every time, so I'm not going to repeat it. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about David, and David is right in the middle, right? David's right in the middle. And uh, an interesting thing about this in Matthew is there's, uh, uh, what is it, uh, 14 generations, I think it is, um, where he goes 14 from Abraham to David, 14 to Babylonian exile, 14 from the Babylonian exile to Christ, because numbers are important. Um, I like numbers also. This is relatively unrelated to the sermon, but I was very excited earlier in the month, 1202-2021, the last palindrome date, eight-digit date for like 100 years. If you do month year, or month day year, I was very excited about it. Uh, and the Jews so looked at that and said, well, this is actually an important thing, right? 14, 14, 14, pointing back to God, because that's a multiple of seven, which is a, a kind of important number. Um, so David's right in the middle. Um, David's the king, right? He is like the most prominent king of Israel. He is where God is establishing his throne. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at David, who's the king on his throne. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit, though, because David's not the first king that Israel has. Israel has another king before David named Saul, right? Um, so we're going to turn to 1 Samuel 8, uh, 4 through 22. And I forgot my, my glasses, so if I start reading something completely unrelated, I apologize. Uh, I think I can. I think I can still do it. My eyes haven't aged quite too much. Um, so, this is uh, Samuel, who's a judge that God has appointed over Israel. And uh, we'll just start at. Uh, well, I'll start at verse one. Uh, and I'm reading from maybe a different translation than the Black Bibles, so apologies, but we can probably follow along. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain 
and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge, uh, to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have, <clears throat> all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your son, place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands or of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed. He will take a tenth of your seed of your vineyards and give them to his officers and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and the best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves will, and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's a pretty stern warning. You want a king? You're going to get a king. He's going to take your stuff, your labor, all of your efforts, and he's going to use them for what he wants to, for his own purposes. Um, and I'm not going to help you because this is what you guys have asked for, and you're going to get what you asked for. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And now after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Um, so Israel does what we see Israel do over and over again, which is be warned, this is not a good idea. And they say, no, this is what we want. And they kind of imply, we're going to have a king, so if you don't do it, we're going to do it. We'll go ahead and appoint one for ourselves. And God says, fine, you're going to get what you want. I'm going to walk with you in this. Uh, and Samuel says, I think you guys should leave. Um, so that leads us to Saul. Uh, Israel does get the king that they want. They get the king that they envision, right? Saul is kind of the epitome of what you would expect a king in those days. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome. He's also really not very wise. He's corrupt. Um, and uh, he's... Most importantly, he doesn't put God at the forefront of his kingship, right? He relies on his own understanding, um, makes his own decisions. So Saul uh, pretty quickly has God's favor removed from him because God does appoint him Saul. Uh, he does that by making the mistake of taking on the role of a priest when he's the king. Uh, this is in 1 Samuel 13. Um, not going to read through it, but 
what happens is, is he's going to go out and have battle. He's going to battle against the Philistines, the perpetual bad guys in uh, this part of the Bible. Um, and he's waiting on Samuel. Samuel says, I'm going to be there in seven days. He waits seven days. Samuel doesn't show up at the appointed time. And all the people are hanging out, and they're waiting. We're going to go have battles. So we got certain things we do before that. Samuel's not here. Everybody's like, eh, maybe we should just go ahead and take off. So Saul takes it upon himself to do the burnt offerings and the peace offering. Well, he's the king. He's not a priest. He's not supposed to do that. So Samuel shows up right in the middle of it and says, what are you doing? This isn't for you to do. I was running behind. You didn't have the patience to wait on me. And Saul is really not waiting on God in that. He's not trusting that God's going to provide what needs to be provided. Um, he starts to treat his relationship with God, or at least we see him treating his relationship with God very transactionally. I'm just going to do the right things. I'm going to check these boxes, and then we're going to go out to battle. You're going to give us the victory. Um, right? That's, that's how he's looking at God. Um, so... God removes his favor from Saul. And this is the first place where we see God say, this is the kind of king that you guys actually need, and I actually want to appoint to you. Because he says, I'm removing my favor from you. Right? Um, and I've already gone, and this is in 1 Samuel 13, 14, uh, says, your kingdom will not endure to Saul. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Right? A man after God's own heart. That's what God is saying. This is who you actually need as a king. Right? This is what the real qualification is. My appointing, my favor, and someone who is after my own heart. Um, well, God removes his favor. Saul doesn't immediately stop becoming king. It takes about another three to four decades. The time is a little bit uncertain. Uh, but that whole time he's operating outside of God's favor. He does makes a bunch of mistakes, and he does all of those things that Samuel warned them he was going to do. He takes all of their efforts, all of their labor, their things, and uses them for his purposes, which are not really bettering them. Um, so, enter David, right? During Saul's reign, we have David... Samuel goes, identifies David, anoints David, uh, but David still isn't king, right? He goes and he fights Goliath. He kind of becomes a member of Saul's court, um, and uh, he joins the army, essentially. Um, goes into battle, gets a lot of renown, gets to the point where he is... I'll move over so I stop getting blinded... Uh, he gets more famous than Saul. Everybody's praising David and not Saul. They say, Saul's killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands, right? So Saul gets jealous, exiles David, tries to hunt him down and kill him. David goes on the run, kind of builds up this big following of mighty men, uh, continues to fight the Philistines, and ends with Saul, his oldest three sons, being defeated. They die and they're, very, they're posthumously shamed very gruesomely by the Philistines. Uh, Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, uh, which is one of those great biblical names, um, he uh, is made king over Israel in the north. David kind of comes out of hiding, starts to rule in Judah in the south, and they have themselves a little civil war. It's pretty brief. Um, 
Ishbosheth is eventually betrayed and murdered by his own men because they see which way the tide is flowing, and David becomes king over all of Israel, right? Hallelujah, yay, right? Now Israel finally has a king after God's own heart. Um, and surely that king isn't going to do what's described in 1 Samuel 8. Well, he does, because he's not the perfect king. He is still a human king. Does he do things better? Yeah, he definitely does things better, right? Uh, but he makes some pretty egregious mistakes. Um, it starts where he moves the ark improperly, right? The ark of the covenant, kind of the position of God's presence on earth with the Ten Commandments inside. It's like the holiest things. After the temple's built, the ark goes into the holiest of holies, right? Most holy object in the world. He moves it improperly. Somebody dies. Um, and then uh, that leads us to, we're going to read in uh, 2 Samuel. And this is, I think this is the passage that was on the bulletin. Uh, this is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 13. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and this is David, um, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan, Nathan's now Samuel's replacement, Samuel's gone, if it's the new prophet, the new judge that's kind of serving. Um, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, whom will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. 
your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So, David is, in smaller ways, making the same mistake that Saul makes. I think I know what's appropriate in this situation without actually consulting God. He looks at his own house and says, I think God might want one of these. Let's go ahead and do that. Right? He wants to build him a temple. And God says, hey, have I, have I said that? Have I given any indication that I'm not happy being in a tent? Um, it is the same mistake of thinking that we know the appropriateness of what should happen uh, in relationship to God and the mistake of thinking that what we think is sufficient is actually going to be sufficient, right? He's leaning on his own knowledge. He's not consulting God. Um, so these are the first kind of two mistakes that we see. We also see David make his biggest mistake, because not too long after this, uh, within Second Samuel, we see the whole um, incident with Bathsheba and Uriah, right? And this is David's biggest mistake, um, and the, the one that is, yeah, pretty blatant, um, right? Bathsheba and Uriah, he sees Bathsheba bathing. Um, it's Uriah's wife, one of his mighty men that he knows, and he takes him, or takes her for himself, right? Then he abuses his authority to hide the sin. He gets her pregnant. Um, he abuses his authority and his power to get Uriah murdered, in which a whole bunch of other soldiers die because Uriah is out fighting battles um, and uh, gives victory to his enemies. So a couple weeks ago, if you were here, Bobby from uh, Soma Northwest taught on that. It's not really where I'm going to go into, but I'm going to point out that the man that God says, this is the man after my own heart, is very imperfect. He's not doing everything right. So when we look at David, we have to take that into account. But we also have to understand that God has anointed him and appointed him knowing all of his failings. Um, right? It's the same, it's the same guy. Uh, so David is king. God has anointed and appointed him. And he said he's a man after my own heart. And that's what we really want. We see God really wants in a king. So what does that actually look like? Right? We've seen David's mistakes. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Um, and we do see that when David is operating righteously in other places in this story, uh, that he starts with asking God. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes. Uh, when he goes out to fight the Philistines for the first time, he sees the Philistines are invading, and he goes, hey, God, should I go out and fight them? Will you give me victory? And God says, yes, I will. Go do it. And he goes and does it, and it happens. Um, we see this when he's even going to go into Judah after he kind of comes out of hiding. He says, God, should I go up to Judah? And God says, yes, go up to Judah. Right? Like, we do see him do those things. We also see that a lot in the Psalms, where all of his pleadings, right, all of the things that he's writing about in those, when he's writing about being oppressed by his enemies, he is starting with God, right? Um, so 
We also look all the way back to Goliath and David, right, which is the quintessential Sunday school story. The big giant and the little boy, and he, and he doesn't care about how powerful Goliath is and his size and everything. He says, I know it's God that brings victory. It's not me. Um, so that's one way. He understands his reliance on God. But another way that he is a man after God's own heart is he is completely aware about his own emotions and what's going on, at least most of the time. Um, And he's honest about them. And this, again, is where we can look to the Psalms, right? We want to see a man after God's own heart. Reading through 2 Samuel and seeing what David does as king is, is fine, but the Psalms is where David is pouring his heart out. Um... And he's really honest about how he feels, right? There's the imprecatory psalms, which are psalms where he is calling out for the destruction of his enemies, right? Uh, There are things in those that I feel like if I said about people that I think are my enemies, I don't think that I would actually be in the right, right? When I read those, I don't read those as this is the feeling that I need to have towards anyone that's opposed to God. What those are is David saying, this is what's going on in my heart. This is what is going on inside me. This is how angry I am and how upset I am, how crushed and depressed and dejected I am. Uh, right? He says things like, may they be blotted out from the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. Right? He calls down things upon their children. Like really pretty brutal stuff. Um, but in all of those things, he also takes them Right, Because you read through those, and the end of those is not, and now I'm going to go out and defeat them. It is, I'm going to give them to you. You are the one that gives victory. Vengeance is yours. Punishment is yours. Judgment is yours. Uh, So he's always taking these things to God when he's pouring his heart out. He's also very broken. Uh, Brokenness in the way we understand being broken uh, is not something that God is. God is not broken like I am broken. Um, but David understands brokenness. We see this in response to the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah when he really steps in it. Um, the uh, Psalm 51, right, is his psalm of confession and repentance. So after he's betrayed Uriah and murdered him, uh, after he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant, um, Nathan, the prophet, confronts him and exposes it. Um, Psalm 51, David identifies, I think, one of the key things about knowing what it means to be after God's own heart. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So in his brokenness, he's recognizing what God desires from all of us. You go down further in Psalm 51, and he says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is something that Saul didn't understand because when Saul is looking at what do I do sacrifices for, it's just a victory in battle, right? 
It's, get the pe- it's to get the people that are leaving that I need to fight this fight to get them to stay so that I can win, so that I can do what I want under my own power. David makes some of those same mistakes, but he understands what God actually wants. He wants obedience. And even when it looks dark, he understands that we need to wait on God, right? If it looks like our strength is waning, but God has said it's not time yet. We don't try to do it under our remaining strength. We wait on God. Um, and in that, he's understanding right relationship, right? When, we talk, when I talk about appropriateness and sufficiency, Saul's not the person that should be doing the sacrifice. Um, that is rightness in relationship because Saul steps in and tries to take upon himself the role of the priest. The priest is the mediator between God and his people. Not the king. The priest does that. David understands these things, understands the purpose of what sacrifice to God means and what it is, and understands what forgiveness flows from, which is not from my act of committing the sacrifice, right? Killing the fatted calf or killing the lamb. It's not from my act. It's from God's act of forgiveness. Um, And he gets that. Even before the arrival of Christ, he gets that. Um, And he understands, too, that those things aren't what make him, like, he understands that those things are not really what make him bad. He understands shame. And brokenness, I feel like, always involves shame. Um, Because... I'm a very broken person. I make a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes in in my life. Um, But I don't like to have those mistakes drug out in public. And and this is where I certainly, as much as I would want to be a man after God's own heart, I'm nowhere close to David. Because when David is confronted with his sin, he doesn't take Nathan off to the side and say, yeah, Nathan, I really stepped in it, right? Right? He writes a song about it. He writes a song about how bad he feels and what he needs from God. But then he doesn't just sing that to himself. He gives it to everybody else and says, hey, can you guys all sing this with me about how bad I am? Right? Like, I've made a lot of mistakes, right? But when I step in a big flaming pile of dog poop, I don't want to be like, hey, everybody else, come over here and step in this with me, and let's smear it over everything, and then look at how bad that is and how great God is. That's typically not my response, but David understands God is so great that that flaming pile of dog crap doesn't really matter. God's favor matters. What God points matters. What God says is sufficient to cover my shame, to cover my brokenness matters. And there is nothing else. Against you and only you have I sinned. Right? David has hurt a lot of people in this. You go back and read through that portion of Scripture. It's, you think about the relationships. It is really egregious. Um, but he says, it's God's favor that matters the most. It's my relationship with God. Now, He's not doing that in a selfish way so much or just an individualistic way because God's favor flows through the king to the people. The priest is mediating that relationship, 
but it is flowing through David to his people. And so he understands what Saul didn't understand, which is it's not just about me. It's about how God, God's favor rests on me and goes to everybody else. Um, so in that, David gets it, but he's still a very broken person. Um, so this is our Advent series, right? Advent, as much as I would like Advent to be short for adventure and to involve, like, going with hobbits and dwarves and, you know, defeating a dragon or something like that. Advent is waiting for an event. It's waiting for a big thing, right? We're waiting for something to happen. We can see it. We can feel it. We can taste it. Um, so we all know what that is, right? This is no real spoiler here because we're waiting for Christ. We're waiting for Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise that's given to David uh, when God says, I'm going to establish your throne forever. They're not just talking about David, Solomon. They're talking about Jesus Christ. Um, so Christ fulfills David's kingship. He's the king that's spoken about. He's the king whose throne is established forever. Um, he's the coming of the perfect king, the perfect king who is actually a man after God's own heart perfectly. I struggled for a long time in... Um, thinking about how Christ can really understand brokenness in the way that I understand brokenness. Because my brokenness is like David's. I've made a mistake, everybody can see it, and I feel shame, I feel horrible, because I know how much I failed. How does Christ actually have solidarity in that with me? Well, um, he has solidarity in that because he did go through all of the things that we go through. Right? And unlike me, when I fail, or even when I just get like basically frustrated, I will turn to things that I shouldn't to self-medicate. Right? I might take it out on my kids, I might take it out on my wife. Right? I might like, like all of the things that we turn to. Codependency in relationships, alcohol, drugs, sex. Um, those kind of things are just numbness. It's self-medication. So Christ, in his perfection, wasn't just... I'm going to check all of the good things to do off the list and none of the bad things to do off the list. It's that when he was confronted with all those same feelings and same desires and same opportunities, he didn't go with them and numb very human feeling of inadequacy that he felt. He accepted it. He felt it. And he didn't let it break his relationship with the Father, right? where David is asking, sometimes, God, what do you want me to do? Christ is always in communion with the Father, and he is always listening to God's will above his own. Right? Um, that's what being a man after God's own heart actually looks like. That's what makes Christ so special. Um, so, we have this in Scripture also. Um, we're told it very clearly, um, both that Christ did those things humbly. So in Philippians 2.6, right, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And this is Christ, who is fully man and fully God. So why he wouldn't consider equality with God something to be grasped is only because of humility, not because he actually didn't have the right to. Um, right, and then again in Hebrews, 
uh, where we get told, for he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, and he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then again, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. That's what's harder to do. It's not just harder to resist the temptation, it's harder to endure the emotion and the hurt that we feel because we're not turning to something that's going to help me get through it, right? This is why when addicts are coming out of addiction, it's, it's a grieving process, too. Because this thing that was self-destructed for me, uh, it actually did help me get through some really hard times. And now I don't have it anymore, so i got to face that pain. Um, so Christ has solidarity and empathy with his subjects. And he doesn't do what we saw in 1 Samuel, right? Because in 1 Samuel, what the warning is, is he's going to take all your stuff and all your efforts, all your relationships, and use it for himself. Well, Christ says, right, take up your cross daily. Follow me, right? Heart, body, heart, body, mind, and soul. That's what I want, all of that. He uses it to build his kingdom. But it's not something that is really taken away from us. In return, we are given so much. He's using it for our betterment, not just his own. Um, there is a beautiful example of this when Christ is in the garden at Gethsemane, right? End of his ministry, right when, before he's about to get arrested. And he is just completely demolished by what he knows is going to come. Because he's in communion with the Father. He knows what the plan is. It's I'm going to go and die. I'm going to get abandoned and betrayed. But the biggest thing is he knows he's going to get cut off from God. And he's sweating blood and he says, take this cup away from me. I don't want this. Right? If there's any other way that we can make this thing work, that we can fulfill your plan, let's do it that way. Which goes all the way back to the temptation that he has at the beginning of his ministry where Satan tempts him and says, hey, I can give you the whole world. I can give you all the good things. You don't have to have any of the bad with that. Um, but he says what we see David say in the Psalms, right? All of those things that are in our hearts that are actually against what God wants. We see that. And then he says, but if it's your will, let's do it. Right? That's what I'm committed to. That's the relationship that I have because that's where my heart is. Um, because Christ is not just the king that's fulfilling David's throne. Christ is also the perfect high priest that mediates between the Father and his people. Right? And he's not a king who takes our efforts and uses them for his own gain and doesn't really care about us. He's a king who's already seated in heaven, like we are told in Ephesians, on his throne spiritually, like there right now. And spiritually, we are with him seated beside him. He pulls us up into his kingship and into his kingdom. He's not a king that's separated from his people. Um, and he's also our brother, right? He is our entry into God's family. Uh, that's the fulfillment, not just of David's kingdom, but the covenant that God made with Abraham where the genealogy starts when he says, the whole world's going to be blessed by you. Um, and he's also the sacrifice, right? So when we see God remove his favor from Saul, he's misusing the sacrifice and what the sacrifice is intended for. Christ is all of these things.
Um, he's the lamb who was slain. So all of that to bring us into the kingdom, to extend the promise that we see God give David to the rest of humanity. Um, the sacrifice brings us to communion. Right? And this is what we do every week to remind us of not just Christ's kingship, but also our position in him. Um, so when we take the meal, we're showing agreement with God's judgment, right? The judgment that we see God giving David, or that we see David recognizing about himself. Um, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, um, I would ask that you don't partake. Because when we're doing this, we're saying we are in agreement with what that is, right? We're in agreement with the judgment against us. We're in agreement with the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And that his grace is the only way that we find salvation from that judgment. Uh, signaling your agreement with that, but not actually being underneath the sacrifice, isn't a place that you should be. Um, so it sounded like everybody got out these little communion cups that are like the lunchable of communion meals. <laughs> so, yeah. so then on the night that Christ was arrested, and he's seated with his disciples, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, right? Not just who I've been, but what's about to happen. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink. And this is my body broken for you. Eat. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kingship. We thank you for your priesthood. We thank you that you are seated in heaven right now, above every name that is to be named, and that you have pulled us into your kingdom. And we thank you that you have reconnected us with the Father. And we thank you that um, this time of year we can know that we are under your sacrifice. We thank you for your coming. We thank you that you came, that you lived as a man, and that um, you suffered all of the same indignities that we do, that you suffered all of the same temptation and oppression and inadequacies that we do, but that you were um, always connected to the Father, and that your ultimate act of love and sacrifice was sufficient to cover the grossness of our sins. And we pray that you would strengthen us to not be shamed by those things, to not look at those things as our mistakes, um, but as what you have covered, pointing us to your glory. We pray that you would keep that in our minds, keep that in our hearts. Uh, as we go throughout the craziness of Christmas um, and all of the uh, chaos that can come with that sometimes. Amen.